Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. The Mike Tyson quote to me is always the favorite is everybody has a plan until they hit him in the face, right? And your opportunity as a founder is to take your idea out and get hit in the face as many times as you can by customers. And that's the difference between like, no, 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 I know what the customer wants. I would never write a check to a founder who has that disillusioned version of um, <laughs> conviction, right? So what I love about working with with startup founders is every room I walk into wherever, like I'm going to an event in, in Egypt in October and, you know, I'll go into a room of a hundred founders and everybody knows 70 to 90% of them are going to fail and everyone knows it's not them. Right. Which is the thing that I love about founders. We're all just slightly delusional. And I will say every idea is crazy right up before the minute it works. Right. But what you don't want to do is I think the the culture of fail fast is really stupid. I think the idea of kill bad ideas fast is super useful. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Dave, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Glad to be here. Thanks for the invite. It is my pleasure to have you here. So uh, I found out about your work by way of your publicist who told me about your book, Startup Trajectory, which I just finished reading this morning, all of which we will get into. Uh, but before we do that, uh, I want to start by asking you, what did your parents do for a living? And how did that end up shaping the choices that you've made throughout your life and your career? You bet. So um, my parents were divorced when I was about seven years old. My dad worked for a, kind of a mid-sized company and finished his career as an HR director. Uh, HRVP for a, a logistics company. My mom uh, was on food stamps and raised two uh, sons as a single mom uh, in, you know, back when it wasn't an easy thing to do. And she ended up working for a small city in southwestern Washington and, uh, as um, at, you know, working her way through the ranks and finished as kind of deputy city manager at the end of her career when she retired. Wow. So, I mean, there's a number of questions that already come that uh, having seen your parents get divorced at such an early age, what impact did that end up having on your own relationships, both professionally and personally? Yeah, I think it, I think for years, probably one of the biggest ones after and I would say after years of therapy, I understand it better was I don't think I really needed anybody. I think one of the things you go through in that process is um, you have lots of 
lots of social relationships, but not a lot of relationships that require any need. Um, thank, thankfully, I'm happy to say I've been married for 34 years um, to the same woman, not not to uh, just 34 years. But um, <laughs> and but I think it took you know 10 years into our relationship and me going through therapy and understand like, wow, it's okay to have needs. Like yeah. I need this. This is, you know, and from um, those relationships with friends and okay to willingness to be vulnerable to recognize that you actually do have needs, which frankly is a, is a big part of the process, right? Mm-hmm. Of you can't do everything on your own. Yeah. Well, I mean, why do you think that in our culture, we have this sort of narrative of, you know, I don't need other people, I, you know, because, you know, we place such a high value on self-reliance, particularly as entrepreneurs who like think they have to be heroic and do everything. Yeah, there's oh my gosh, there's so much there to unpack. I think you know there's there's hustle culture is the modern day equivalent of it. I think there's the you know the independent you know Western I can go take care of myself angle, um, you know, and it's mostly based on myth, right? I mean, the kind of the classic uh, book on the topic is a hero with a thousand faces, right? So um, every great story has. Uh, a hero. Every great story has a guide. Uh, every hero is faced with the decision of epic failure or, or great success. But most of us don't think that the guide is actually required. Um, but every great story has a guide, right? And I mm-hmm. think that's one of the opportunities or or challenges that we have to recognize um, as we go through our journey is, hey, you're not going solo. Um, one of the things we spend a lot of time working on these days is I spend my 20% time you know, my, my one day a week, sometimes it's more than that, doing community building around startups mm-hmm. and really helping to build, um, helping founders recognize that, hey, you're not doing this alone. You know, there's other people around you who are asking the same questions that you're asking um, and they're not competitive. Um, but I think that's part of, you know, where we deal with the, there's a fine line there around mental health and as it relates to depression and isolation. Because I think the the startup world is one where, we always have to present our best face forward, you know, mm-hmm. cause you're always raising money. You're always recruiting. You're always looking for co-founders. You're always looking for customers. So consequently you have to put your best foot forward. Yeah. When in reality, many people are just dying inside, right. And, and struggling with depression and isolation. And, and I think that's one of the things we've tried to normalize in my time in the startup community is um, actually saying, Hey, listen, we're all in this together. We're working mm-hmm. on different stuff, but we're all in it together. No. Uh, I published a, a blog post at one point about my own personal journey with depression. And after I published it, dude, I was like, Oh my God, what did I do? Right. And I've never had so many positive comments about a blog post, um, from people going, Oh my gosh, I had no idea that that was something that you'd struggled with. I had no idea that, um, I, you know, I wasn't out there by myself. And I think that's normalizing that I think is an important feature. Yeah, no, I, 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 it's funny because we've had Jerry Colonna here, and, you know, his team at Reboot is doing some amazing work around this. Uh, and it is interesting. You're right. You, you know, as somebody who's in the public eye, you, there's a sort of fine line between vulnerability and train wreck. And I think the only way I discovered that line was, you know, stepping across it. Uh, but I realized the moment I took an investor's money, the moment I had a literary agent, the moment I had a speaking agent, I realized that everything I do in the public eye is a reflection on every single person who's bet on me. Which, in one sort of paradox, changes your ability to do the very things that got you into that position in the first place was to take risks, to be vulnerable. Um, how do you find that balance, um, particularly as somebody who is, you know, a prominent figure in a, in a community where you're a public figure? Yeah, I, I think today it's more a matter of, you know, I'm, I'm not early in your career. You're concerned more about what 
people think. And later in your career, you could probably give two Fs about it, right? And I think there's a, a point in time where you decide what you care more about, right? Is to be genuinely who you are or to, um, you know, is, is it a mask, right? And I think that that for me, you know, there's, there's things, I wrote a, a blog post a few years ago around avoiding the startup leeches, right? Because every ecosystem has um, people who are there to, to sell something to the startups or to take something from the startups or to help them raise money for a fee, right? And it's, it's recognizing that um, there are good actors, there's bad actors, and there's unintentional bad actors as well. And you just have to know what you're, you're faced with going into that. So I think being aware, you know, self-awareness mm-hmm. is the one thing Srinivas I found that I can't coach on, right? Yeah. It's, it's a funny characteristics. Like I can coach you on financial models. I can coach you on go-to-market strategy. Um, I can coach you on fundraising. Like there's a lot of things I can coach on. Self-awareness is not one of them. You either <laughs> have it or you don't. And it's a bummer because there's people I'm like, oh my gosh, that person would be amazing if they would just like let their guard down a little and let somebody in and give them honest feedback and take the feedback. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, I want to come back to this uh, in a lot more detail when we get into the book, but you mentioned that your mom was on food stamps and your dad was, uh, you know, somebody who basically sounds like climbed to the top of the ranks in his given field. When you saw that economic contrast between the two parents, how did that shape your own beliefs about wealth and money and you know all the things that you've done because i mean i imagine as somebody who's had five exits from a startup money is probably the least of your worries these days yeah i think one of the things that it's a driver right i think you i think the thing i recognize now looking back um when i sold the first company i was my uh our investment banker was like so what are you going to do next and i'm like i'm i'm going to drive to to a retreat in colorado and i recognize that um I've identified who I am and the company I started and the company that I grew from zero to 32 million in sales and sold, I'm no longer the CEO of. Mm -hmm. And my identity has been tied completely with that. And so that was, I would say it was an okay success, right? I mean, I raised 12 million and exited 85 million. So it's never been, there's been no unicorns. Um, and regretfully, some of the chips I pushed all back on the table and took too much risk with is in the ebbs and flow of doing five, um, five startups. But the, the, the big thing I think for me is you recognize that there are things that drive you from when you're a super young age, like I'm never going to be on food stamps. I'm going to make a success out of it. Things that negative drivers as well as positive drivers. Yeah, absolutely. And then when I kind of went through that whole process and honestly, there's some therapy about it, I was realized, wow. Uh, those things don't control me anymore. And then for about 18 to 24 months, Srinivas, I was like, huh, that's really interesting. It was very uh, existential, right? Where you're, you're standing back looking at it going like, huh, that doesn't motivate me anymore. Like my father's mm-hmm. approval, as much as I'd like it right before he passed away, I mean, yeah. as much as I'd like it, that would be awesome. But it's no longer a driver. And it was weird. It was like being rudderless in some ways because you're like, I don't actually know what drives me now. Mm-hmm. So as much as it was not a good driver historically, it was a driver that you become comfortable with, yeah. right? It's part of what defines you. And when you lose that, you have to redefine yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't mean that you have to, you've lost and you have to go find yourself. That's not what I mean. I, it's, it's being retrospective around what's the thing that drives you. So, so for example, my, it used to be about me um, changing the world through the startups I wanted, wanted to launch. Now personal vision and mission is all about, founder outcomes and how do I help the founders change the world? Because that's leverage, right? If I can help more founders change the world, I actually get massive leverage out of that where I couldn't do it by myself. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So one thing that, uh, you know, you just alluded to earlier, which I, I think is funny because it sounds like your, you know, sort of second identity really speaks to this is, you know, sort of the individualism that we have in, in Western culture. Um, you know, and it's funny, uh, I just had uh, Julie Batalana here earlier this week who wrote this new book called Power for All. And one of the things I really appreciated was the amount of emphasis she put on interdependency versus individualism. And I feel like that is something that we kind of tend to overlook. And I think companies are guilty of it. I think individuals are guilty of it. Uh, so, you know, I, I'm writing this entire uh, article about why the, you know, the winner takes all reality of the creator economy in which creators do the majority of the work that build platforms like Facebook and Twitter and Spotify, but the companies are the ones who take home the majority of the rewards. And when you have, you know, sort of excessive self-interest like this, at some point it has to reach diminishing returns. So how do we cultivate, particularly in the entrepreneurial ecosystem, a greater awareness of the interdependency of all of this? Because, you know, Every one of us is interdependent. We're not independent of anybody, right? Like you need a ride somewhere. The Uber driver needs to basically make some money to pay rent. You know, you need a coffee. The kid working there needs, you know, enough money to pay for his date to the prom. Yeah. So, you know, one of the interesting things I have a, a picture on my, uh, I wanted to put it in the book, but I, I ended up not putting it in the book was my, uh, my grandfather was, had the first Ford garage in 1911 in Camas, Washington. So it's a little town in southwestern Washington. And thanks to the History Channel now, I know that that was, uh, you know, two years before the assembly line was created. So they would ship the parts out to the to the uh, um, local folks who would reassemble or assemble the vehicles. So the, the funny thing is, is, you know, people would say, you know, I talk to founders all the time and they're like, well, if I, Henry Ford said, if I asked my customer what they wanted, they'd, they'd say a faster horse, but that's, you know, pre-internet days. Like there's a lot of research we can do these days that, uh, that find out what customers want. There's interviews we can do with the customers for customer development. Um, you know, there's the, the thing is, is you don't know what the customer wants. And the Mike Tyson quote to me is always the favorite is everybody has a plan until they hit him in the face. Right. And your opportunity as a founder is to take your idea out and get hit in the face as many times as you can by customers. And that's the difference between like, no, 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 I know what the customer wants. I would never write a check to a founder who has that disillusioned version of, um, conviction, right? So what I love about working with, with startup founders is every room I walk into wherever, like I'm going to an event in, in Egypt in October and, you know, I'll go into a room of a hundred founders and everybody knows 70 to 90% of them are going to fail. And everyone knows it's not them, right? Which is the thing that I love about founders. We're all just slightly delusional. And I will say every idea is crazy right up before the minute it works, Right. But what you don't want to do is I think the the culture of fail fast is really stupid. I think the idea of kill bad ideas fast is super useful because I'm learning a framework by which as a founder, I can determine if this idea is worth my time or not as the first investor. Right. And that's the same decision criteria I use as an investor. Do I think this idea is worth the time? Does it have a big market? Is it a great team? Do they have some traction? Is the product super sticky? So for the fund that um, I'm just joining, we we have the, we're walking through the process of here's the 10 criteria we're using to evaluate your company. Here's what we call the fast four, right? Because the other, the other six don't really matter. If we don't like the fast four, the other six don't matter. So trying to help founders prioritize in all of the things that they have to do, um, the 
four things they really need to figure out first, right? Which is, is this an awesome market for your product? Now, to the Henry Ford example, it was a market that didn't exist yet. It was a nascent market. Every unicorn that's launched over the last five years launched into a new and nascent market, almost without exception. So you have to see the market as if it's going to be there in the future. You have to have some vision for that for sure. But there's a lot of founders who had conviction and belief and the market never matured and the timing was wrong and they failed. So there's early indications around like, is the market coming to us at the time we expect them to or not? And if the market isn't maturing at that time frame, then you have to be willing to kill that idea and maybe come back and do it at a later time. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. 
With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember, folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. You know, it's funny you say that because, you know, we started a podcast 10 years ago. People were saying podcasts were dead. Um, and, you know, I always say, <laughs> yeah. look, I'm the beneficiary of a 10-year head start on what became a massive cultural trend. For sure. I mean, look at Odeo, right? Odeo mm-hmm. originally launched the podcast market. They went on to pivot to become Twitter, but... You know, and that was a complete pivot. It was not taking the existing product and going to a new market or taking the, keeping the existing market and launching a new product. It was a completely different new product, new market. But to your point, you know, that was that was a long time ago, right? And mm-hmm. people who believed in podcasting in the early days, the answer was, you're right. But if you're early, it's still incredibly expensive as a founder because you don't yeah. have the money to educate the market. And the mm-hmm. market's going to mature at its own pace. You can't really force the market to mature, Right. So take Quibli, Quibli as an example. Remember that one recently? Right. I don't. I think I remember reading briefly about them in your book. But. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, it's a great example of, you know, uh, former HP CEO, amazing cast of characters. They read it. They raised over a billion dollars. You can't even a billion dollars does not buy you product market fit. It just mm. doesn't. Right. So, and they were creating content, but the form of the content was different than the form of, you know, um, TikTok content or other content that was a different link. So you had to get all the creators to recreate it a different length. And so, yeah, a billion dollars doesn't buy you product market fit. So you, you need to, that's kind of your first milestone as a founder is, um, you know, I was, I was, one of the seminars I do is culture comes second in startups and people are like, Oh my gosh, that's, you know, culture eats strategy for breakfast. I'm like, yeah, only if you have a company. Mm. Right. So Culture has to come second in a startup because if it's, if you're, and let me differentiate here. If you're in the services business, you don't need product market fit. Other people are buying these services. The question is, will will they buy the services from you at the price you're trying to sell them? So service, service market fit doesn't exist. Services are services. You're you're unlikely to introduce something completely new. Mm -hmm. Products, however, require product market fit. Right. Which is the customer has to be willing to accept it, use the product, have it be sticky. Right. And then at some point pay for the product because if they don't pay for it, you lose. So your first milestone as a startup founder, if you're building product, is to find product market fit and product market fit. It's not unicorns or fairy dust or butterfly farts. It's math. Like it's Mm -hmm. just math. Are your leads going up at the top of the funnel? Is your conversion rate improving? Is your annual contract value improving? Is your time to close going down? If you have those things, those are forward indicators of product market fit. There are other product market fit indicators like what's your customer satisfaction? If they were to leave your product, would they be disappointed? That's great if you have a thousand customers. But if you don't mm-hmm. have a thousand customers, you need a forward looking, you know, what? how do you create the early indicators of it, not the trailing indicators of it? So yeah. those are important as a startup founder because, you know, I, I was um, working with a fund recently and I heard one of them speaking on stage and like, you have to dream it, you have to believe it, and you have to do the work. And I'm like, that's absolutely true. You have to do all those things. And if you're doing product, you have to have product market fit. Because mm-hmm. even if you dream it and believe it and do the work, if you don't find product market fit, you're still dead. 
right? Yeah. You, you don't have a company. Totally. Well, I, I think there's one line in particular that struck me in the book. You said, remember, passion is important, but not sufficient. The market matters. Both the idea and the execution of the idea matter, but you can execute well on a bad idea and still fail. And if you launch into a bad market, it's like being a great surfer on a small wave. The outcome will just be mad. I mean, I think that you talk about the importance of you know being data-driven with your decisions. And I think creative people in particular are notorious for trusting their intuition more than looking at data. Yeah, the thing I talk about in the book is I, I want you to have strong opinions, loosely held and informed by data. Because mm. you need to have a strong opinion. That's, that's what got you here in the first place. That's why, what will make you a great founder. But if you ignore the signs along the way, right, and you're like, you're just waiting for the wa big wave and waiting for the big wave and waiting for the big wave and the big wave never comes, right, because it's still out there on the horizon and the market timing is too early, the answer is you're never going to have a monster return. And the thing that founders need to remember is that when you, when you take outside money, and you were talking about this earlier, um, when you take the investor's money, you take their business model, right? Mm -hmm. So you have your, your return timelines have changed. You're, you, you don't get to do whatever you want with the profits, right? I've had people who would be like, oh, we're going to switch to a B Corp and we're going to give away 10% of our profits. I'm like, it's too late. You've already taken outside money, mm -hmm. right? That's a decision you have to make before you take outside money. Cause as an investor, I didn't invest on that thesis, right? Yeah. And as an investor, I expect a return. So, and frankly, as, as a founder, you're the first investor, right? And I, I've, I talk with a bunch of founders who are like, you know, well, how long have you been working on this idea? And they're like, oh, I've been working on it for seven years. And I'm like, oh my God, don't go eight, <laughs> whatever you do. <laughs> right. Like, yeah, but they, there's a sunk cost dilemma there, as you know, which is like, mm -hmm. but I have so much time invested in this. I'm like, okay, well use what you learned to create a framework, to evaluate the next idea. But what I push hard on the book is if you're not getting traction or validation or revenue in the first six months, mm -hmm. I got to, I got to ask the question, like, you know, one of the folks who wrote the first review on the, on the book on Amazon was hysterical because I didn't think Amazon was open for reviews. And then the first review that got written was somebody I've never met. And her comment was, Dave's the kind of friend that did tell you, you have a piece of spinach in your teeth. Like that's yeah. a bad idea. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, that's I was actually just, I wish I had written that. It was such a brilliant review. Well, I mean, I, th I think that that actually is, is really important um, because, you know, Brian Holiday, even in his book, you know, uh, Perennial Seller talked about how creative people are notorious for producing false positives. Uh, so, you know, when you're looking at something like product market fit and we'll, you know, get deeper into a lot of the things here in the book. But, you know, since we're talking specifically about product market fit, what's the key to avoiding false positives when you're in this phase of, you know, uh, research and customer development? Yeah. So I think there's a couple things. One of it's, if it's just you, the answer is give permission for the people you're interviewing to give you negative feedback. Yeah. Right. So, and one of the things I put in my customer development questions that I wrote about in the book was, um, one of the questions I want to ask is, Hey, Srinivas, if this was to fail, why would it fail? Mm -hmm. And what I found both as a CEO of a team and when I'm doing customer development interviews, if, if I give people permission to give me negative feedback, they will take it. However, wow. if I don't give them permission, social norms say, I don't really want to dump on your parade. So I'll just go like, dude, that's awesome. Good luck with that. And, you know, the when you see people roll their eyes and they don't understand what you say, when you're if your mom says, honey, it, it's OK, I don't need to know what you do. You have a problem. 
She actually does need to know what you need to do because if she can't explain it, you have a problem because your customers can't explain it either. And the thing you, you know, the thing that happened to me, Srinivas, I flew to New York to meet with uh, Warburg Pincus. And um, it's so funny because I actually reached out to the the particular person. I, I wrote about her in the book and I reached out to her on LinkedIn. And I'm like, I, I wrote about you in the book. I just need you to know because I referenced you in the book. And so I gave her the pitch on the company. The company is growing super fast, right? We went from zero to 32 million in sales in, in three years. And um, she's like, love your passion. Love this market. I can't explain your message to my partners, so I won't. Mm. And that's true in venture capital across the board. Now, she was a managing director, but the thing that's really interesting is you, when you're a new founder, you're going to meet with a, an associate at a firm, right, who's out doing deal sourcing. And their career at the firm is based on their ability to rightly articulate your idea. So, if, if I walk away and I go, wow, Srinivas is incredibly sharp, but I can't repeat it, you've lost. Yeah. Right? So I, I just think that's the number one thing as far as the individual feedback is if I give people per- permission to give me negative feedback, that's important. For yeah. a company, the thing where I've seen it fail the most is um, organizationally negative feedback doesn't go fast, only positive feedback. Or you have a blocker who's the person who stands between you and all the customers because they they want power. And then you wonder like, hey, well, how many contacts within your big customers do you have? Because that, that one single contact either in, inside your organization or inside the big company um, left. And now you're like, we don't actually know anybody there. Like, how did that happen? Right. Mm -hmm. So creating opportunities, I think, as an organization where it's okay for people to give um criticism is, is really important. So what I do with um, every organization I run as a CEO is I'll, I'll come in and say, listen, my name is Dave. I'm an entrepreneur. Half my ideas are good. Half my ideas are crap. Let's go test this. And then I have a chance for them to come back and say, hey, listen, that idea you had, here's what, here's the data on it. I think that was wrong. Right. But I've given permission for negative feedback, whether it's customer development interviews or an organizational interview. So if you're, if you're an intra and you're building something within your organization, the good news is you have customers and you have revenue. That's rad, right? You have two things that startups never have, but you also, your innovators have left, which is a problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and if your organization absolutely. is not, if it doesn't accept risk, you're, you're going to be set up for failure, which is why so many of those initiatives fail. Mm. Well, let's talk about your own, uh, you know, five exits and, you know, the first company. I mean, I think the the thing that, uh, as you and I were talking about before we hit record, uh, that I'm learning how to do is to be a CEO, which I've realized is very different than somebody who started a podcast. <laughs> yeah. So what actually is involved? Uh, you know, what are the roles? What are the responsibilities? Uh, when you're in the position of, okay, I'm a founder and now I'm the CEO who had like the, from founder of a startup to CEO of a $32 million company, what is the trajectory? Like what enables that? Well, I think your first set of hires are going to be critical hires that you know, right? And then the question is, how do you scale past that? And that could be 25 to 50, depending on how skilled you are as a manager, intuitively or professionally or experienced, whichever, Right. So my, I think my sweet spot, I think in retrospect is zero to 25 people is great. Right. Cause I can almost manage everybody through sheer force of will and, and, you know, um, hustle culture for all the bad things that come with it. Then as you start to grow past that, you have people who used to report to you directly or indirectly, and they now have middle managers who report to them. 
like that, that 25 to 150 stage, right? And you get to a point where you're like, oh, we have to bring on middle managers. And then how do we empower them to actually make decisions versus having the people beneath them go like, yeah, yeah, you know what? Um, I'm used to reporting to Srinivas, so I heard what you said, but I'm going to go ask him anyway, <laughs> right? So the dysfunction within the organization says, how do you build and empower people on the team so that they can keep them the airspeed and altitude associated with the growth of the company? And clearly, I, I mean, I, I look back and I'm like, I still get, you know, all the wounds on my back have healed, but I'm still twitchy about it and the scars are still there, <laughs> right? Because you're like, I just totally mishandled that. Mm-hmm. And part of it was we were growing so fast, right? In three years, we went from, you know, three people to 150 people. And, you know, you're, the, the bad things are per, pretty common, right? As I look at it now as a board member is, oh, we have had, we've had that person around for a while and they're kind of a generalist and they filled the, the role of a generalist early on. But we've grown to a point where we need specialists, but we still keep them on. And then you, when you let them go, right, everybody's like, oh, my God, that took so long. Why didn't you do that sooner? Mm-hmm. And you're like... I thought I, I thought I did. Right. When the fact is, is you waited too long to do that. So making those HR decisions are super hard. Right. But early days, you need generalists. You need somebody who can wear multiple hats and cover a range of topics. And like we were chatting about before, it, you're, you're functioning in scarcity. Right. You, you're always understaffed. You're always undercapitalized. You're always under deadlines. Right. You're just you're under everything. But the challenge becomes that scarcity should create an opportunity for you to focus and say, these are the things we're doing these quarter, this quarter. And these are the things we're, we're putting off to future quarters. So one of the things I do as a board member is I stole a, a topic from a friend of mine named T.A. McCann. He's, he calls it his itinity list. It's the important things we're not doing yet. So, and I've never met a founder who didn't love all of their ideas, me included. Like I love my own ideas. That's what I do. <laughs> right. So, um, so at the at the bottom of my quarterly planning doc that I walk founders through, it's like, here's my, here's my revenue objectives. Here's my marketing objectives. Here's my ops objectives. Here's my product objectives. Here's my people objectives. And down at the bottom is important things we're not doing yet. So I, I still want to capture those ideas, but I want to realistically talk with the founder and say, can you realistically do this as well this quarter? Because usually the answer is, oh, hell no. Right. Yeah. We've already committed to these 16 things that we said we're going to ship and we're only going to ship three of them. So realistically, you're going to get to that in three quarters out, four quarters out, like capture mm-hmm. it. Right. So it doesn't get lost, but make a decision as a board that says we're not actually going to do this yet. Right. Mm-hmm. Because I already have priority things. And if I whipsaw my team around, right, the team at some point is going to get exhausted. You can, you can do sprints, but you can't do a continuous sprint where you're always changing direction. That's you you'll just you know, kill your team. And I think that's one of the mistakes I made, right? It was the sense of urgency around getting the, hitting the business objectives and learning how to be, I, I think real, some people will take realistic as the wrong thing. Just, I, I just believe, right? And the example I use in the book is I, I trained for a, a, a stupid um, road race called Ramrod. It's called right around Mount Rainier in one day. So it's 154 miles and 10,400 of vertical. So it's basically one day of the Tour de France in the mountains, right? But I train like a madman for it. Now, a lot of founders are like, well, I don't need to train for it. I can just go do it. And the answer is mm, actually probably not, <laughs> right? No. You you have to train for it. You have to prepare for it. So all the stuff you're doing on a quarterly basis is building muscle for the organization to show what you can go execute and what you realistically can't. So just because you as a founder say, oh, we're going to ship this thing in in Q3, 
it doesn't mean it's physically possible to do, especially if you're not a technical founder and you don't know, right? Mm-hmm. So you can't just declare it. It doesn't work that way. So, and that's the difference between organizations I would say we continue to invest in and organizations we don't continue to invest in. Like, does the founder continue to hit milestones? Yeah. And are they good at predicting that? Because if they're always whiffing, like we had one portfolio company forecast a million dollars in revenue for a quarter and went to zero, like a, a complete whiff. Yeah. How do you not know in the middle of the quarter, right? To your <laughs> that board, you're where not like, going to hit a hey, million dollars. <laughs> We're going to whiff. Um, so yeah, you, it's, that's, you know, a, a little bit of delusion is good, but you can't push over the edge. Yeah, I think the the one thing that I have learned with my, you know, working with investors is that you need to be completely transparent because I, I realized I was like, as scary as it is to go to an investor and be like, hey, our revenue tanked this quarter. You know, I think they would rather hear that. It's yeah, I think my attitude is, you know, I'd rather tell you that I'm having heart problems, not that I had a heart attack. Right. Totally. And I'd rather know early so I can actually help you prioritize and think about it. So much of my time today is spent as a board member. And as an investor, so I'm always trying to set up, um, you know, I'm, I'm a very frameworks driven guy at this point, because I'm like, there's so many variables that are out of your control. What's your true north? Right. And your true north from a board perspective usually comes down to a set of categories. Are we hitting these marketing milestones and conversion metrics or not? What's called unit economics. Right. So um, within the 14 revenue models I reference in the book, each of the 14 revenue models has unique unit economics. So conversion rates, marketing spend, all those things. And the sooner you know those, the sooner you can go from a risk, a you know, where you're a zero and one risk driven company to a growth driven company, right? We're acquiring mm-hmm. customers at reasonable economics. Yeah. And marketing is just one of those things, but then you have to do ops and product and customer service and right. It's just, but on a scale, those, those break down into who owns it, right? Cause you can't own everything, right? As the CEO, you have to hire good people hopefully you're comfortable with the fact that they don't have to be not as smart as you, right? Cause that's, that can be a, an early founder dilemma as well, which is I, if, if I'm the smartest person in the room, dude, I don't want to be in that room. I'd rather be in a different yeah. room. Right. But exactly. for a lot of founders, it's intimidating and their insecurity will keep them from being successful for that reason. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, we, you know, we had an amazing community manager who left us this year and when we went to the next one, she was another person who was in our community and I told her, I was like, I'm handpicking you because you're the person I think will call me on my bullshit and question my authority and challenge me. I'm like, you're the one person I know won't just, you know, take what I say at face value. Right. Totally. And you have to take that feedback and those objectives and, and it's, it's hard, right? Cause you, you want to, you, you feel like you're leading the ship and I want to lead and I want to show my investors and all that. But if you're not picking up the signals along the way that you're on the wrong path, mm-hmm. you're still on the wrong path. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Here's a cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Yeah. Well, let's do this. Uh, in the interest of being kind of selfish, I want to look at all this through a very practical example. Um, let's take your frameworks for uh, you know building and scaling startups and apply it to unmistakable creative. Like if I, you know, if you became you know an investor in unmistakable creative, what would be the process and frameworks for guiding me through in terms of metrics, in terms of unit economics, in terms of sales and marketing? Like what are the things that I you would have me focus on? And how do we set the right objectives and key results? Because I've read the John Doerr book like three times, and I still feel like I don't quite get it <laughs> uh, because I clearly get off of those objectives. Like I, you know, I get distracted. Right. Yeah. OKRs are great if you have the organization size and uh, training to implement it. Right. In the early days, I would say a light version of that is totally OK. So your your business, as anybody who's doing a, a podcast, you're in the advertising business, you're fundamentally in a marketplace. 
right? So your marketplace is you're you're having people on like like me who are the people who are being interviewed, uh, and then you have an audience who listens to it. So you're you're monitoring both sides of that. In 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 a traditional marketplace, it's a it's a um, a seller, which is the content, right, and the buyer, which is your audience. So the monetization then becomes either advertising or subscription mm-hmm. at a mature state. Right. So the question is, is some subset of your audience may pay for a subscription. Um, the other way to monetize it is advertising based on CPM rates or cost per right. thousand for those folks who are new. Um, and, and it's really an advertising based business. Right. So then it becomes a question of like, what's my frequency? So assume that you can get more content, right? That's pretty natural. There's folks like me who write books who want to promote the book and you're a channel to do that distribution, but it's very black box because none of us know as a publisher, we talked about earlier, the publishing world Mm -hmm. is whacked, right? So you can't get any sales free data and you can't take a percentage commission on my book sales because I have no idea what actually sells from this. Right. Mm -hmm. So, um, and by the way, it's trajectory startup in cases anybody is wondering. So I know you, you flipped it in the original, but it wasn't worth, it wasn't worth correcting. So (laughs) the, so with that, that's the content. That's why people come back. So now the question is what's worthwhile for the people who listen. Is it an advertising that I'll listen to this particular product or a particular service, something that's of value to them? And how much do you know about their ICP or what's called their ideal customer profile? And you're going to have multiple ICPs, right? So people who casually listen, people who are creators, people who are entrepreneurs. And so then the question is, what since they're there, what can I advertise and, and promote to them? So um, it may be a course. Like there's a bunch of folks around the creative a class that says, hey, you can come listen to this. And if you want to engage with you individually as a coach, or you want to um, engage with you as one to many, right? So a seminar, um, people can pay for that coaching, people can pay for that seminar. The obviously challenge is, is you don't scale as an individual. So I think the only people I've seen actually make money in the coaching environment are the coaches who coach other coaches to coach. <laughs> but I don't think anybody yeah. else makes any money of that. You mentioned the Jerry Colonna, amazing service to f- startup founders and entrepreneurs, and they offer a series of things. There's a seminar you can attend. There's a group you can participate in. Um, you can become a coach. That's a Jerry certified coach. Uh, for those of you in the startup world that don't know Jerry yet, if you're not in the startup world, less relevant, but if you're in the startup world, it's really about um, facing yourself as a startup founder and understanding yourself to become a better leader. And it's really group therapy, but mm-hmm. we call it organizational development because we're professionals. But it's <laughs> group therapy, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so, talking to Jerry is like an hour of therapy. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Did he make you cry is the only question, right? Yeah. No, I mean, it's, you know, like I, cause we've had him here. He's, you know, such an amazing guest, but yeah, it's literally an hour of therapy to talk to him. It's brilliant. It's totally brilliant. So, um, and I think if you're comfortable with that, that's a good thing as a startup founder, I would encourage you to engage with that. So, so yeah, I mean, so the business that you're in is really the advertising business, right? Which monetizes yeah. it at scale. And the problem with advertising is in, unless you have, let's call it a, you know, a million unique followers a month or mm-hmm. visitors on your website, it's super hard to monetize at launch. And your startup business is really in, when we talk about product market fit at launch, you're very limited in the revenue models you can use at scale. Mm-hmm. You can use all of them, right? There's 14 revenue models listed in the book. The idea here is your startup idea is, I hope unique, but how you monetize it is almost never unique. But if you if you come up with a 15th revenue model, I will totally write about it. I'm not against one. It's yeah. more just recognizing that 
some models work at launch before you're at scale. Some models only work at scale. Mm. Advertising is one of those models that works really well at scale. Give you an example. So today, 3,000 to 5,000 people read my blog every month. A good CPM rate is about 35 bucks per thousand, which means if I advertise to you on my site, I would make about a hundred dollars a month on advertising, yeah. <laughs> which isn't worth my time. So, um, so the contents there just for free, right? So indexes well on Google, you know, all those things are true. So the question then becomes for folks in like your business is what do we do to get to scale? How much does it cost us to get to a million uniques a month? And what's, what are the revenue models we use in the, in the interim that actually scale, right? Because mm-hmm. if you do individual coaching, it just sucks up a huge amount of your time. Yeah. So you can package up the content. You can sell subscriptions to the content. You can sell seminars to the content. As previously mentioned, you can coach other people on how to be a coach to this one, because that's probably where the only money is. Um, so those are kind of a few angles that I would look at in the, you know, ultimately in the, the content business. So the purpose then becomes the back end revenue opportunity is how do you repurpose the content that's already there so yeah. you can get bigger, better reach. So a good example there is, I don't know if you've ever run across Payscale. It's a Seattle-based company now owned by private equity. But one of the things that they did in the early days was they repurposed their content to create um, unique search results in SEO. So mm-hmm. they had a bunch of data on accounting um accountant compensation so what they did was um they create repackaged that in such a way they had accounting salary seattle accounting salary for all the you know little neighborhoods around seattle woodenville and linwood and and when people would search for it they would come up number one in the search results right and that content was user-generated content that allowed them to drive to sell another product So in the content business, content can be used as search engine optimization to drive and sell other products. So the question is, Mm -hmm. what then is the other set of products you would sell at that next stage? Right. So um, just some some thoughts there as it relates to revenue models, for sure. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, Well, let's let's talk about one other component of this. You know, we've been alluding to Jerry Colonna and, you know, sort of the the psychology aspect of this. Um, You know, we kind of talked a bit about uh, founder depression and, you know, the, the psychological woes that come with building something. I think the one question I've been trying to kind of get an answer to, uh, is this idea of not letting the results of your startup determine your self-worth, particularly when something is so intertwined with your identity. That's not easy to do. Yeah. Well, especially when you're like, I'm the founder, I'm the creator, I'm the CEO, I'm the chairman. I love that. I love, um, one of my favorites is visionary entrepreneur. And I'm like, oh, I'm so sad you died. Because I, I think that's one that they only give posthumously, right? You don't get to declare yourself visionary entrepreneur. Um, yeah. The market will determine that. So I, I think stepping back and recognizing that you serve your customer, you serve your employees, if you do it well, right? And if you deliver a good product, um, you'll get validated in the form of payment, um, the big, one of the big takeaways here, Dave Burkus, um, who's a super angel investor based in Los Angeles. Um, I quoted him a couple times in the book and then I reached out to him and he actually read the book and wrote a blurb for the back, which was super fun. Cause I was just a fanboy of Dave's, but one of the things Dave's talks about is where there's mystery, there's margin, right? And the inverse of it is true too, where there's no mystery, there's no margin. So if you're doing something that is meaningful and something that, um, has mystery in it, you should also be getting compensated for it. Right. And I think a lot of founders are like, we're doing, we're doing good in the world. And I'm like, well, that makes you a nonprofit. 
mm-hmm. or it makes you a, a startup that's going to always be a nonprofit. And you should just recognize that. Yeah. Right. So the identity component and what's important here is I, w- I want you to be passionate. I want you to go solve a problem. I want you to change the world. But you have to figure out how you're going to make money in the meantime so that you can become a big company with lots of customers and revenue and then, um, you know, scale up in a big way. And I think for us as founders, we have trouble differentiating the mature state of the world as it's going to exist when we're successful and the reality of scarcity and where we sit today with me and my dog, Daisy, figuring out how to do this. Mm. And how do I get from that one spot to another? And belief and dreaming and doing the work isn't enough. You have to engage with customers because I have founders all the time. They're like, oh, will you sign an NDA? Absolutely not. I'm going to keep my ideas secret. Okay. Ideas die for lack of um, <laughs> lack of exposure, not for overexposure. Right. When I was running Startup Weekend as uh, CEO and Senior VP of Programs Worldwide, I can't tell you the number of times where I'm like, yep, seen that idea before. Yep, seen that idea before. And everybody's like, my idea is super unique. And I'm like, actually, it's not. <laughs> or the worst ones, actually, it's not. And somebody else has raised $100 million in that market already. And the people are always mm-hmm. like, you really? I had no idea. And I'm like, that's because we get blinded by self-belief and a little bit of delusion. And we don't actually want the data. So we actually have to go out and do the research. And the sooner you do that, you can pivot to a new idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so you know, a couple of different things. Let's let's talk uh, briefly about the fundraising process, because that's uh, something you covered in a lot of detail. And, you know, it, it was an in- interesting to see this. And I realized, like, the path to a seed round and the path to a Series A are wildly different. Yeah, uh, sure. Because I went in and, I, you know, I, that was the first and only time I'd ever pitched a VC uh and I, it was, you know, because it was pot fund, they were stunned that I came in with a pitch deck. Like I went in with the Y Combinator pitch deck template and I basically said, this is what we're going to do with your money. And here's examples of how we've already done these things. And so somehow, you know, like I, and then I had a mentor who was like, this should be a no brainer for you guys. So we were one of the first portfolio companies, but now that I'm researching what goes to a series A, I'm like, oh wow, this is like a whole different ball game. Yeah. I think the, the big thing for founders recognizing that. In the seed round, initial rounds, you're talking to angel investors who really believe in you and they believe in the idea and they believe in your conviction. And they would l- like to see data, like customer validation data, or what we think of traction. Again, traction and product market fit are just math, right? So I'm looking for unit economics, how many customers are using the site, et cetera. In that early stage, you're setting the pricing in the terms of the deal, Right. And you need to make it easy for angel investors to write a check of 10, 25, $50,000, whatever, however much money you're raising. If you don't make it easy for them, they can't say yes. Like if you don't have uh, series seed docs that are available and it's S E E D, you can find series seed docs available online. They're open source. They're actually in GitHub. It's amazing. And you can actually have your attorney for very, very low fee, write, um, you know, customize those series seed docs for your particular company. Now the question is one of price. So pricing is like selling a, um, a rare car, right? A, a classic car. If you find somebody who loves it, the price is high. <laughs> if you find somebody who hates it, the price is low. <laughs> so there's no, there's no really great way to price your round other than you need to raise enough money so you can live to fight another day. Mm-hmm. And some people have access to that capital and some people don't. Underrepresented founders notoriously have difficulty getting friends and family money because there is no friends and family money. 
Um, they also ironically have trouble getting Series A money, even though their data may be better than other companies. And sadly, I have to say, you know, if it was two white dudes raising money, they would have raised it. And if it's two um, black co-founders raising money, it's super hard, right? Which mm-hmm. is part of what I'm working on with the new fund we're, we're doing. So in the early stage, you have to set the terms in such a way that it's easy for the investor to say yes, which means pricing your, your price at a reasonable price. And there's information asymmetry through this process, right? In the, in the angel stage of the round, you know more than the angels know. In the later stage, in the Series A stage, I know more than, as an investor than you know, right? Mm-hmm. So that information asymmetry is part of the problem. And um, so your outcome, if you're trying to raise your first round, is you're really just trying to raise for six months, right? And But I, I really need you to tell me, for this $50,000, $150,000, what milestones are you going to go hit? I don't care about your milestone is, well, I get to pay myself for 12 months. That's not a milestone, mm-hmm. right? How many customers are you going to get? How much revenue are you going to drive, right? Those are milestones. What, when are you going to ship a product, right? On the yeah. Series A, you're going to go out and say, we need this much money for 18, 12 to 18 months. This is how much money we need. And as an investor, I'm going to set the terms. You're mm-hmm. not. Right. Yeah. And founders will come to us and like, well, we want a monster valuation. I'm like, good, good for you. Congratulations. <laughs> it doesn't mean you're going to get it. Mm-hmm. Right. I want to be a billionaire and own an island. That's not true either. So, yeah. you know, it's really important that um, you know the process in the early stage. Your friends and family should get the best deal. Right. What I don't like is when I show up and look at your previous round of funding and I'm like, Wow, you raised a hundred thousand dollars at a five million dollar post money, and you don't have any revenue yet. And now you're asking for me to do five hundred thousand dollars on an eight million dollar post, and you still don't have any revenue. You overcharged those friends and family, which is going to make you know Christmas and and Thanksgiving super awkward. <laughs> wow. So you know, I had uh, Jeff Veen here. Uh, you know, I think he's a vice president of product at Adobe now, but. Uh, we were talking about this and you know, he said that, you know, there's sort of two narratives around this whole idea of funding. There's the sort of, you know, base camp narrative, uh, Jason Fried and David Heinemann Hansen that, Hey, we don't need it. Uh, and then there's, you know, the narrative, yeah, we can do something with this. And I really appreciate the fact that you pointed out that raising money is not a sign that you've succeeded at all. Like I had a friend here in Boulder who says, you know, there's a VC here in Boulder. Apparently when he sees young founders celebrating their first round of funding, he's like, what the fuck are you celebrating? This is the worst day of your life. Now you owe people. <laughs> and, but now it's so true. to somebody else. Yeah. Well, I, I realized, you know, like literally the day we got our round of funding, I called my accountant and I was like, do me a favor and figure out every expense that we can cut. And he was like, you just raised a round of funding. I was like, I'm Indian. That's what we do. We look for ways to save money. Uh, but, you know, because I realized I was like, this is not the this like I haven't arrived now. The work is actually starting. Yeah. I, and I think that, you know, listen, customers and revenue, we just saw the biggest exit ever of a bootstrapped company last week or this week. Right. MailChimp got bought um, for $12 billion, some ridiculous number. They I never took that. any outside capital. Wow. Like never. So they bootstrapped the entire thing. Now, if you went back and asked them, would they have revisionist history now and say, oh no, it wasn't that hard. Right. Well, the fact is it was freaking hard. <laughs> right. And when they could have taken money, they didn't. 
for whatever reason, right? Could have been a personal decision, could have been the fact that they saw they they saw the path to revenue, right? But I mean, Steve Blank says that when you when you take outside capital, you take their revenue model, and their revenue model is uh, the average fund has a ten year lifespan, ten plus two one year automatic extensions, so ten one and one. So if the fund invests in you in year five, you're now there's seven years until they want their money out. Right. Mm-hmm. Because it's what's called closing escrow. So in the case of DocuSign, which a good friend of mine was the founder of, it was a 16 year overnight success story. So if you were an angel investor in that deal and you, you bought shares at, you know, 22 cents a share in the early days, the good news was it was a monster return because the company came out, went public at 32 bucks a share, got up to 314. I think it's just under $300 a share now. Right. So massive, massive return and a 16 year overnight success story. Now, a bunch of people are like, didn't see the first eight or 10 years of that. They're like, wow, DocuSign, it's incredibly fast. My my buddy, right, who started it was like, yeah, it wasn't fast, <laughs> right? Like ever fast. No. So I, I think as a founder, what you have to recognize is alignment with the investor incentives is super important, right? Do they have a long-term view? Do they have a short-term view? And you need to ask them the question as an investor. Um, hey, what's, you know, where are you in the fund life? Mm-hmm. Uh, when are you going to expect a return? And angels sometimes can be super awkward because they're like, oh, I've had a change of life. Like I just dropped my son off at, at college in Boston. It's super expensive, right? I'm, you might come back to you and say, hey, you know that $100,000 I gave you? I kind of need it back. I got to mm-hmm. pay for college. I didn't yeah. think this was going to take this long. <laughs> so, um, and, you'll get, and you'll get that, right? So my point is, as a founder, you have a vision of where you want to go. When you invite other people into that vision, there's things you can and can't do. And you just you need to recognize that as a cost of doing business, and you don't get the latitude to do everything you want with carte blanche. Yeah. Well, let's talk briefly about um, sort of the distinction between lifestyle business and the startups. I think people don't really get which one they're in often because I think I started out building a lifestyle business and I realized I wasn't anymore the minute I took somebody else's money. And mm-hmm. I think the the this is something I, you know I think I've I've been writing about thinking about is we have this entire creator economy uh, you know and I briefly alluded to this at the beginning of our conversation and the reality is that yeah tools democratize access they don't change the dynamics of winner takes all and the harsh reality in my mind of the creator economy is that the big winners are the platforms and the middlemen they're not the creators and. So there's a really great article on uh, the Harvard Business Review that uh, this woman, Lee Jin, who runs a company called Atelier Ventures, uh, wrote about why the creator economy needs a middle class. Because there is no middle class in the creator economy. It's basically a developing country. You know, it's it's just a microcosm of big tech where a handful of people reap the majority of the rewards. Like you go to, you know, crowdfunding platforms like Patreon. Like there's a small percentage of people that make a reasonable living and most of them couldn't buy a coffee every week. And, right. and you wonder why they stay after they're giving 40% of their revenue to Patreon. Well, so there, there's numerous, you know, I'm, I'm writing this like lengthy article, which is going to critique platforms in a big way, but you know, from the investor side, I, uh, you know, I, if I was in your shoes and I had a choice of, Hey, I can invest in Drew Houston, who's building Dropbox, which will net me, you know, a billion dollar return. Or I can invest in, you know, some creator who's, you know, creating a podcast or, you know, trying to build a popular magazine. It's kind of a no brainer for your, your part. And at the same time, you can't sustain a creator economy because the creators are the ones who actually make the platforms work. 
if people didn't post content on Facebook, then Facebook would have a problem. Yeah, they give you the distribution channel and a way to get your content out. But if all those people stopped, then Mark Zuckerberg would be screwed. But the funny thing is, there's this tremendous power imbalance to your point. You mentioned Patreon takes 40%, right? So you get Patreon taking a percentage, you get Stripe taking a percentage. The real winners are not the creators, even though they're doing all the work. And what I'm wondering is, how do we get to a place where we can build an interdependent creator economy that puts the interest of both the platforms and the creators um, at the center of this? Because right now, the platforms benefit far more than creators do. Yeah, I, I mean, you're, you're spot on. The, the the asymmetry there is is disproportionate. So, so I was on the board of a company called Classmates.com before we sold it to United Online, and Classmates recognized that we were in I the user generated content user generated content business, right? Mm-hmm. And I remember sitting in a board meeting talking about these two new startups and whether we should be worried about them: the Facebook and LinkedIn. And um, you know, I couldn't get into the Facebook for six months because I didn't have a .edu extension. <laughs> Um, so the interesting thing about it is, you know, they have so much scale now. So it it looks a little bit like, you know, when Google launched against Yahoo, everybody's like, well, no, Yahoo is unassailable. Right. And now Yahoo can't find its true North with a, you know, a boatload of compasses. So I think that how do you level that out becomes a super interesting question. And it's a hard question, right? I mean, like every, every great startup is going after a massive market and we're talking massive markets that that don't exist yet. So if you look at this one, you're like, Oh, this is a really interesting market size. The market doesn't exist yet. Now the question becomes, what are the product features at scale? And then how do I back them up and say, okay, at launch, how do I, how do I do it? Like I'll give you a good example. So if you're familiar with Startup Grind based in California, Startup Grind's had a very consistent business model the entire time they've done Startup Grind. It's been an 80-20 split to the people who do the work. So the people in the market get 80% of the ticket sales, 20% goes to corporate. And then at the corporate level, they provide you with all the services required to help you run your business. But the, the cash is disproportionate in favor of the person doing the work. Mm-hmm. I would say at Startup Weekend, we had the same experience. With Startup Weekend, we didn't give people money. We were a nonprofit. We gave people influence. We gave them the ability to run these events in their own market and make a name for themselves as the person who was the influencer in their market for startups. And we had 5,500 volunteers. And our last full year before we sold to Techstars, we, we did 1,265 events worldwide in 120 countries with 74,000 attendees. We gave them influence. So I think the fundamental here, which is antithetical to, you know, the latest Facebook book, (laughs) which was, you know, clearly we have been sold out by Facebook, Mm -hmm. right? I, I, I recognize it's, it's a tool that I can't not use completely as an author and as a speaker and as I'm doing events, but I, I'm loath to use it, right? Yeah. Um, Instagram only slightly less. Right. LinkedIn has, has at least done little evil or no evil by comparison. But I think there's an opportunity there, but you really have to find as the founder, if you were to be the startup of this new company, okay, I'm, I'm compelled as an investor around the size of the market. Super interesting. What is the hook that allows you to get creators, but it has to be a reasonable economics. It's got to be more 80, 20 than 60, 40, mm-hmm. because if you build a big, uh, market on Patreon, and then you're taking you're giving up forty percent. Why wouldn't you do all that on Mailchimp and 
um, a blog post. Yeah, right. you own the distribution channel. This is right. this is what I've always said is that, you know, social, no matter how big your audience is, is a, it's a distribution channel that you rent with your time and attention. Yep, for sure. And, you know, even the analogy of publishing, which we talked about earlier, is is right on line with that is, you know, in order for me to, to get credit for selling my book, I have to sell it through a distributor, but I can't track my conversion rates to a distributor, right? So mm-hmm. I have to own the channel. But I don't want to have to necessarily, I don't want to necessarily know the, own the business of the channel. So it's, you're, you're bringing up a really interesting idea because no one's done it yet in a way that um, democratizes access. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the, the power in it if you can stay on mission, right? And I think creators generally, we, we generally look at it and say like, boy, I'm, a, I'm aligned with mission. One of the things that um, I'm doing a keynote sp- speech in Cairo coming up and we're, t- I'm testing it out in a, in a local couple of local markets, but it's really that whole concept of, wow, that's on mission, right? Like, how do I know if something's on mission or not? So mm-hmm. I'll, I'll give you the, the aha moment for me. I, I uh, did a seminar recently for a group called fearless fund out of Atlanta and their, their, um, their co-founders are black women who invest in black and brown women. And I did a seminar for them for 250 ish women and then office hours the next week for about 40 women and they're not in their portfolio. They're they're just they're educating this channel through masterclass to help um, black and brown women understand what they need to do to be successful in in either a, a startup or a scale up business, more so than services businesses. Back to your lifestyle scale up business. I kind of I make the differentiation there between are you running a local business focused on a local zip code or geography, or are you running a business that can truly scale massively and globally? And uh, so seminar was fun. Enjoyed it. Got to talk about 14 geeky business models, which I'm, I love. And, and frankly, it's a super narrow lane, right? And those of us who like it are like, oh my God, it's awesome. And for everybody else is like, you are so weird, right? I totally get that. And then the, the founders reached out and said, hey, we'd like to meet you and have a conversation. And, and two minutes into it, dude, I realized it was an interview, right? Mm-hmm. And they're like, we'd like to have you come on as a senior partner for the fund and help us um, help the companies we're investing in scale up. And as I hung up the phone, I'm like, oh my gosh, this is so on mission, right? So here's the math. So 2.9% of all venture capital over the last 10 years went to women, not women of color, all women. Wow. Sadly, 3.1% went to white dudes named Dave. (laughs) Like that's a a serious, now the white news named Jim got 3.4%, right? But you know, in the chapter of the life, my life and where I am, I'm like, this is on mission, right? How can I help more black and brown women get access to capital to grow their business in a way that will create great returns and generational wealth? And I'm like, if I can help change that number, that's a number worth changing. Yeah, I love it. Um, well, I have two final questions for you. I feel like I could talk to you for like four hours about this. Uh you know, as you've become older and you've earned more money, you, you know, gotten, you know, all these successes under your belt. How has your personal definition of success changed? Yeah, I actually, I actually went back through that and probably six months ago around personal mission, personal mission and vision and had to kind of read back and, and recast it. Cause people will ask frequently, Hey, are you going to do another startup? Uh, by the way, today's my birthday. So oh, happy birthday. Um, thank you. Um, I'm glad I get to hang out with you and, and, you know, get a chance to, in, to indirectly talk to founders. So, you know, cause you get to reflect back a little bit and you're like, is this stuff I'm doing material? Will it change things? Right. All those things are things that are super important to me. 
Um, cause I think at the end of the day, you're going to be evaluated, not by how much is in your bank account, but how many people are like, wow, that person changed my life. Right. And I hope that's mm. from your listeners stake. I don't separate out the success you're having today or the, the hopeful success you're having today from your business, from the outcome of, do I get a chance to impact people's lives? So hopefully those two things are actually together. Yeah. So for me, it was tying it back to, um, our, is the stuff I'm doing pr- producing founder outcomes? And by founder outcomes, I most of my day job these days is helping founders sell their companies and actually get wire transfers to their personal bank account instead of to their corporate bank account. So that's a, that's a founder outcome. And through that, can I leverage that to help those founders then change the world? Like it's really about them changing the world. It's not about me changing the world. Yeah. And there's good and bad with that, right? The good with that is. It's about me being an enabler and an empower. Can I help them do it? And I think the answer is yes, right? And I can gauge my success. I can look at the number of founders I talk to uh, directly. Uh, some I can, there's some I can um, track on a monetary basis. Like what was their outcome? How much did we sell on an enterprise value this year? And then there's the indirect ones, right? Which is you get a note on LinkedIn from somebody who read the book and you're like, oh my gosh, this was super helpful. And oh, by the way, you know my boss in Tokyo. And it's like a note from Tokyo. That's super crazy, right? Those are things you look at and go anecdotally, those are good feel goods, right? Yeah. But Hopefully you get to look back and say, did I make a difference? Did I change the world for what I was capable of, of changing? And how far did I come in the journey? Not where did I end up? Right. I think one of the big things that people forget and, and you know, this is you, you need to work hard, but you also need to you also need to work the system. Right. There's a great blog post recently about the founder of Snap and, and how he recognizes his entitlement from the standpoint of I knew how to work the system. It wasn't just about working hard. Having grown up from a, um, where I grew up, how far I've come, I think is great. Did I, did I become a billionaire? I know a couple of them, right? And the answer is, well, no, I'm not a billionaire, right? I've done okay, right? But it's, it's, it's how far you went, you know, how far did you get, not where you ended up? Okay. Because I think from an equity perspective, it's our chance to bring people along with us. One of the things I always um, do at this point, I have people reach out all the time. And by the way, if you're listening to the podcast and you want to reach out, the answer is totally fine. I'm happy to give you some office hours. Recognize my question will be this. Who are you mentoring that doesn't look like you? Yeah. And if you are, I'm happy to meet with you. And if you aren't, I would encourage you to go do that first because you're always one chapter ahead of somebody in the journey if you decide to help them and support them, because that's how you'll be get judged at the end of the day. It won't be a question of, were you able to buy an island off the coast of the Bahamas? Great. Mm-hmm. Right. So at least yeah. what's important to me, I guess, at this point. Yeah. It's funny you say that. Cause I've been thinking like, I don't want to teach a podcasting course to online marketers, but I thought about doing a podcast mentorship program for kids who are in high school. Totally. Right. Cause you're really, it, it's, and you you won't get you can't put it in the bank account. Yeah, exactly. Right? But if you're if you're adding value and you're creating great value, then the answer is that's a good thing. Yeah. Well, I have one final question for you, which is how we finish all of our interviews uh, at the Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? You know, it's a great question. I think that the differentiation for the founder is that the the comment from Dave Burkus about where there's mystery, there's margin. So in the, in the context of this conversation, not about the greater sense of life, but I think as a, as a startup founder is, is the thing you're really doing incremental or is it transformational? And 
you don't get to decide that your customer gets to decide that the market gets to decide that. Right. And I have founders all the time that, that may, <laughs> that they make up a problem that they're solving. And I'm like, I'm not really sure that's a problem. <laughs> right. And so if you're really solving a big problem, I, I commend you for it. No, it's going to be super hard work. You're gonna to have to put in the work and, and, and do the, all those things that, that happen. If it has good mystery to it, you can make money with it. And hopefully by adding that exceptional value to your customer, they'll pay you exceptionally well for it and you should be rewarded. And the last comma to that is, and if you don't see that early indication, pivot, like yeah. make a life, make a life choice, change and pivot. Like the worst option is, you know, this, the book actually had a little bit of a motivation with one of my employees from my first startup met me for coffee and he took an hour and explained his idea and what he was working on. And we got to the end of it, of us, and I'm like, listen, the good news is you have a job at Microsoft. Don't leave that job yet because I, I don't get it. Not that I'm the final judge and jury of your idea by any means like that. I should not be that case. And I'm not that pedantic, but I don't understand it. And I, and usually I do like, I see a lot of, I see a lot of ideas and a lot of deals. Uh-huh. And he's like, well, I've already left my job at Microsoft and I'm going to put a second mortgage on my house. And I think my wife is leaving me. And I'm like, oh my God, no. <laughs> like if the market hasn't told you you're onto something, don't continue to believe just because you think you got to, you know, to, I have to go over it, around it, or through it, right? That's that's what that's kind of that independent American way thing. If the market tells you otherwise, believe the market. Yeah. Amazing. Um, well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your stories, your wisdom, and your insights with our listeners. Where can people find out more about you, uh, your book, uh, and all the other stuff that you're up to? You bet. So uh, on my blog and, and website is dkparker.com. Um, you can find me on social media, almost always uh, Dave Parker SEA for Seattle. So uh, feel free to, and you can find the book on Amazon um, called Trajectory Startup Ideation to Product Market Fit. Amazing. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming. Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.